welcome. You are, this is What Does the Torah Say About Modern Economics, where we have the pleasure of learning this week with um, Rabbi Jonathan Ziering. This is the second of six sessions. Um, I'm just going to send down one more round of panel invitations. If you are on Zoom, that is a good way to ask questions, see, be seen, um, ask, especially if you want to ask questions directly. But if not, the chats on both Facebook and Zoom will be monitored. So you can also ask questions in there and I will share them with the class. And okay. source sheets will be, um, sources will be shared on screen by Rabbi Zering and I will post links to them in chat, in chat on both platforms as well. Um, okay, great. Um, <clears throat> okay, well, thank you, Kayla. Um, so, so we started discussing Yovel uh, last week, and specifically, we wanted to tackle the the broad question of does the Torah have um, not just an economic vision, but a unique economic uh, vision? Because um, in theory, you could think, well, the Torah doesn't have an economic vision. And even if you think it has an economic vision, you could think that basically the Torah collapses into whatever economic vision you have. And as we saw, certain people who embrace uh, capitalist worldviews, whatever exactly that means, um, were quick to assume that whatever they think capitalism means, the Torah means that. Uh, we saw um, others like Herzl, who very much embraced the socialist uh, worldview, uh, trying to explain how Yovel was essentially a um, was essentially um, a version of socialism, or at least you could transform it as such. If instead of returning property to the original owners, you returned it to the collective. Um, but then we noted that some thinkers, most notably uh, Zev Jabotinsky, um, felt that it, not just does the Torah have an economic uh, vision for the world, but that its vision is different. Um, and the way he laid it out, and again, we're, we don't have to be committed to it, but really there are two questions that Jabotinsky is dealing with. One is, does the Torah have a unique, well, really three questions. Does the Torah have an economic vision? One. Two, is that vision unique? Two. And three, um, is what exactly is that unique vision? vision? Uh, you could agree with two of his, uh, his assumptions and not the third, and still come to the conclusion that Torah has something unique to offer. Um, but his particular theory was that uh, socialism in its, its essence, however exactly it manifests, is fundamentally, as he puts it, prophylactic. It believes that whatever ills can plague the economic system, uh, inequality um, being the major one uh, that he saw, um, socialism tries to head that off before it exists. And therefore, it doesn't believe in private property. Um, it believes in taking the means of production and giving it to the collective so that differences in wealth don't develop to begin with. Uh, capitalism for him, uh, in its purest form, believes that what drives the economy is people's desire to work for their own betterment. Uh, and therefore, you have to recognize private property. You have to not take away that which belongs to them. You have to give them the ability uh, to, pursue, uh, to pursue wealth. And that, for him, is the fundamentals of capitalism. Um, and for him, Yovel suggests a third model. And that is something like corrective capitalism. The belief that on the one hand, in the short term, you have to allow people to strive 
to better their lives in whatever way they want. And therefore they're allowed to make money. They're allowed to buy property. They're allowed to build businesses and the like. Um, and we don't try to head off the possibility of inequality. If certain people um, want to work more, uh, others want to work less, or certain people are just luckier and other people are less lucky, but you allow the economy to function. He sees that as a good. However, he also understands that it's not good for that to get out of control, that for whatever reason, whether it's luck or whether it's per people's skill, whatever the case may be, um, even if we want people to work and we want people to build and we want people to grow their wealth, we don't want it to get to the point where the differences are so great that people cannot um, compete at all, uh, that people are so poor that they have no chance to build wealth. And therefore he says that the Torah has a series of systems that it puts in place that allow us to correct whatever errors might have not necessarily might have become too egregious. And therefore you have Shemitah every seven years where we waive uh, loans, which he do, uh, doesn't make a big deal of, but obviously is part of that system. For him, Shabbat is part of that system that one day a week people aren't working. And therefore um, that the, the constant requirement of people to work um, is not manifest. And then Yovo for him is the ultimate where we return land, which especially in the ancient world was um, the means of production. And then what we saw at the end of last week was that this belief that the Torah is something unique uh, to offer and that Yovel manifests it, um, expressed itself in many attempts in the early uh, years of the state to actually implement something in law that would <coughs> reflect this vision. So that's where we left off uh, last week. Um, and then we had seen one modern example from Rev Malama, who tries to take a Jabotinsky-esque view uh, to explain how Israel should uh, divide up the money that we make from the uh, the natural gas that we found off the coast. Um, where taking Jabotinsky's idea that we should recognize the importance of returning the means of production um, somewhat to the uh, to the community, and at least not allowing certain groups to become so wealthy and other people to have no money. Um, so he suggests taking that money and giving some of it back to the community, but not all of it. Um, and in an attempt to update Yovel, he says, well, nowadays land is not as important as education. And therefore he thinks that money should be um, directed towards education and towards infrastructure, which was an attempt to take some sort of Jabotinsky-esque view with an understanding the modern economy is different. That's where we left off last week. But um, now I'll pull up the sources. The, the question I wanted to deal with this week, which is the second half of the Yovel question, is that everything we've said until now, um, including from a very prominent halachic authority like Rav Malamud, um, amazingly, um, basically leaves God um, out of the, of the equation. If we have time, we'll come back to the question of what land to do. I gave you that as well. Um, but it leaves God um, out of the equation. Um, and I want to try to understand whether that makes sense in the context of Yovel. Um, so if we go back actually all the way to the beginning, let's go back to the verses. Um, so the verses say as follows, 
you shall sac- sanctify the 50th year, and you will call, proclaim liberty throughout the land to all of its inhabitants, right? We free the slaves. It will be a jubilee for you. And each person will return to their inheritance and they will return to their family. And the land will not be sold in perpetuity. Because the land is mine. Now the mine here Really, I mean, I took this translation from the G- JPS, but the truth is that it's probably spelled here incorrectly, right? Mine here should have a capital M. The land is God's. For you, meaning all people, are just strangers and sojourners with me. And here's where things get complicated. Because if you think about the theology of Yovel, um, it may be true that Yovel, part of it is to make sure that wealth doesn't get out of control, that inequality doesn't get out of control. It may be that part of it is to recognize the reality of private property, right? The reality that um, at some level, even the inalienability of uh, private property, right? That people are given land by God. And then even when they sell it, they can't fully... uh, alienate themselves from that land. Um, that may all be true, but part of the theology of Yovel is theological, right? Part of it is that the reason that we don't let you sell land forever is because of God, because God wants you to recognize that the land is his, Right? So it's not really correct to say that in Yovel, we returned the ancestral homelands to people who sold it simply for their own economic betterment. That's true. It's not just that we return it to them because they have a right. It's from their ancestors. That might also be true. The point of Yovel is that there are inherent limits in the economic system because on top of whatever private property rights may exist, on top of whatever ancestral rights may exist, there is God's rights. And God wants you to realize the land is his, and therefore he's limiting your ability to buy and sell property. Now, that's a very important point because um, you really got to wonder how central is that to the theory of the economy that the Torah is advancing? And how much can you really um, tease out from the Torah's economic system if that is not the working assumption of the modern uh, economy? So before I look at, I think, a little bit of the ancient Near East, will help, which will help us understand this, um, because this week was uh, Rabbi Sachs' yard site, we'll, uh, we'll start with... Uh, maybe a few words from him, um, because he does a good job at, at identifying the way that Shemitah and Yobel are functioning in multiple levels. And then we'll move into the ancient Near East where we'll understand that the theological component is not just part of it, but might actually be the central part of it. And then we'll talk about what that does to our the insights that we can derive 
from Yobel. So Ray Sachs writes as follows. This was from 5778. We are what we do not own. Right. So he says economic inequality leads <coughs> to inequality of power. And the result is often the abuse of the weak by the strong. This is a constant refrain of the prophets. Amos speaks of those who sell the innocent for silver and the needy for a pair of shoes, who trample on the heads of the poor as in the dust of the ground and to deny and deny justice to the oppressed. Isaiah cries, woe to those who make unjust laws and issue oppressive de uh, decrees, making widows their prey and robbing the fatherless. Micah inveighs against people who covet fields and seize them, houses and take them away, uh, houses and take them away. They oppress householder and house people and their inheritance. <clears throat> this is a problem for almost every society and age. What makes the Torah distinctive, distinctive is that it refuses a one-dimensional answer to what is a genuinely complex problem. Equality is a value, but so too is freedom. Right. So already in Rabbi Sachs, we see a similarity, again, not in the exact same way, not developed in the exact um, same format. But the idea that the key to understanding the Torah's economic system is that it's not one dimensional, that it recognizes, as he puts it succinctly, the value of freedom, of people to make money, of people to pursue their own betterment, and also the reality that equality even if not the only value, is clearly also a value. I mean, therefore, he says, as we talked about last week, it's not fair to say that um, the Torah is either purely communist and socialist or purely capitalist, right? And it's an extreme form. And he says communism and socialism have been tried and failed, but the free market generates its discontents also. One principle that can be inferred from Tanakh is that the market was made to serve human beings. Human beings were not made to serve the market. The fundamental question is, therefore, what best serves humanity under the sovereignty of God? A careful reading of Bahar reveals that the Torah's approach to this question operates at three completely different levels. One is political, a second is psychological, and the third is theological. The first level is simple. Bahar proposes two cycles of redistribution, Shemitah and Yobel, the seventh and 50th year. The intent here is to restore a level playing field through a combination of debt remission, liberation of slaves, and the return of ancestral land to its original owners. This is a way of redressing accumulated inequalities without constant intervention in the economy. That is the political dimension, right? So here, we can quibble if it's exactly the same as Jabotinsky, but fundamentally his belief, right, that on an economic political level, what Shemitah and Yobel, right, he brings Shemitah more to the fore than Jabotinsky did, but both Shemitah and Yobel tell you that in the short term, we allow a somewhat free market or maybe a very free market, but we try to correct the inequality or the extreme inequality or the problems that can come from a completely free market every seven years by wiping away the loans of those who have fallen into debt that they just can't get out of um, naturally. And then in Yovel, we return the land. So that, so far, we're basically more or less a Jabotinsky land. But then he adds two more things. 
<clears throat> the psychological dimension is what the French revolutionaries called fraternity. Ten times the laws in Bahar use the word brother. Do not wrong your brother. That in, small, in no small measure is why from the beginning of the Jewish story to today, Jews have thought of themselves as a single family. Right? So the second point he notes is that part of the reason that we have a different economy, and here's where we start to diverge from Jabotinsky's assessment, is that Jabotinsky just says, look, from an economic perspective, corrective capitalism is the best system and Yovel teaches it to us. But at the second level, Ray Sachs notes, but wait a second, if you follow Parashat Behar and all the economic rules that are there, there's a word that appears over and over and that is brother. Maybe the reason that Yovel exists and Shemitah exists is not just because the Torah thinks that this is the best economic system full stop, but maybe it thinks it's the right system within an economic reality where all the players in the economic reality are obligated to view each other as not just um, cogs in the system, but as siblings. Now, if that insight is correct, then even if it's true that Yovel offers and Shemitah offers a unique economic model, we have to seriously question whether that model is something that should be endorsed um, fully or even at all in an economic reality where maybe that assumption of fraternity, that assumption of brotherhood is not assumed. Um, and this issue, we're going to return to more um, directly next week in the laws of rebit, in the laws of interest and usury. Because as we're going to see, the Torah has very, very extreme things. And the and even the Nevi'im as well, right? Throughout the prophetic books um, as well, in Yeshayahu, for example, um, the Torah's opposition to usury is quite severe. Um, however, despite its strong opposition to rebit, the Torah very clearly distinguishes between lending money to other Jews with interest and lending money to non-Jews. And trying to figure out what that might tell us about the Torah's economy, the fact that certain very basic economic um, systems, right, the question of whether it's legitimate to lend money uh, with interest or not, that there's a distinction between Jews and non-Jews. So already in the laws of Shvi'it, of Shemitah and Yobel, Ray Sachs notes that part of what drives it is not just the insight that this is the best economy in general, but that it's the best economy in which the participants are viewed as siblings. And this, as I said, complicates the question of does Yovel have insight for a modern economy where maybe that's not the case. And his third, the third level of Yovel is finally, finally though, and most profoundly comes the theological dimension. The Torah is making a radical point. There is no such thing as absolute ownership. There is to be no freehold in the land of Israel because the land belongs ultimately to God. Nor may an Israelite own another Israelite because we all belong to God and have done so ever since he brought our ancestors out of slavery in Egypt. Right? The third logic that underpins the entire system of Shemitah and Yovel 
is that in Israel, between Jews, when referring to the nation, which owes a unique debt to God because he redeemed them from slavery, in the land that he granted them on certain conditions that they live up to his rules, in that land, theologically, they need to cede the idea that they have full ownership and recognize that God is the true owner of the land, the, the true owner of the people, and therefore that affects who owns the land, how long you can buy it for, how long you can sell it for, how long um, slaves can be owned for, or whether they're really slaves or more indentured servants because it's temporary by definition. But that fundamentally is a theological point. Um, and like I said, this is where I think things get complicated. Because um, I, I, let me, I'll tell you a story to, to, to highlight the problem. Uh, many years ago, I was in a seminar on the ethics of war with Michael Walzer. Um, and uh, who wrote Just and Unjust Wars. Um, and Michael Walzer um, had, was trying to argue for a secular read of Yeshayahu, right? a secular read of Isaiah. Um, and he noted that in Yeshayahu, the messianic vision is that one day there will no longer be fights in the world, right? there'll no longer be war, because everyone will come to the mountain of God to the centralized place, and that will allow there to be peace. Um, and he said, well, not everyone believes in God, but the United Nations is a place where everybody can come together from all over the world. Its vision is to bring peace to the world. And you see that this is basically messianic. Um, and I said to him, I said, look, with all due respect, um, you may believe that, and maybe maybe there's even truth to that. I'm not going to weigh in on that. That's not my issue. But in Yeshayahu, in Isaiah, the whole point of those chapters is that the reason that universal peace, which has been so elusive, will one day be reached is not because people are going to get together in some random place. It's because they're going to get together on the mountain of God and they're going to accept God's dominion. And by all accepting the same God and the same basic beliefs and the same basic moral vision, that's what's going to bring peace. Because they're no longer going to fight over ideologies. They're no longer going to fight over religion because there's going to be one religion under God. That is what the chapter means. And he said to me, he said, you might be right in Isaiah, but if you're right, then Isaiah has nothing to say to a secular audience. And I said to him, that may be true because the book of Isaiah, the book of Yeshayahu is a book of prophecy, which it's predicated on the fact that the person talking is talking in the name of God. And therefore, I understand that you want the Bible, you want Isaiah to be equally applicable to someone who accepts that the person talking is a prophet and someone who doesn't accept that the person talking is a prophet. You want to believe that 
Isaiah's message that simply by bringing everyone together, we can have peace, even if they don't believe in God. I know you want to believe that, and maybe you're right. I'm not going to weigh in on it, but that's definitely not the vision of Yeshayahu, right? Isaiah thinks that the reason there can be peace when everyone comes together at the mountain of God is because it's the mountain of God. So if I now bring it to the question of the economy, whether it was Herzl or Jabotinsky or the other 10 people we ran through, they fundamentally felt that even if you're living in a secular world, and for them, it doesn't have to be Israel. I mean, they happen to be offering economic advice for Israel, but the way Jabotinsky presents it, Yovel and its insights of corrective capitalism are the greatest economic vision you could ever have, and this should be true everywhere. It's just that he happens to be imagining Israel. <clears throat> but they never mention God. So they never raise the question, well, what if you take God out of the equation, either because you're dealing with people who don't believe in God or you're dealing with people who do believe in God, but they're not building their economic system around God's laws. Does Yovel work without that theological background? And that, I think, is a very hard question. I don't know the answer, but I think it's an important question to ask. And I want to deepen that question because I don't just think that God happens to be part of the picture. And I don't even think that God happens to be part of the picture and from a theological perspective is really important. I think that Yovel arguably might only work if it is a theological, um, theologically animated economic vision. Um, and to, talk, to highlight why I think this is true, um, I want to show you how um, a, a theory by Professor Joshua Berman. Um, so uh, Professor Berman has a book called Created Equal. And the third chapter, which is really, really, and the whole book is excellent. The third chapter um, is, I think, particularly fascinating. It's called God the Economist. And the goal of that chapter is to show, sorry, the weather has changed here. It's hot during the day and cold at night. So my voice goes. So I need a constant cup of tea next to me. Um, Professor Berman notes, that if you follow the laws in the Torah and you compare them to the laws in the ancient Near East, you will discover that a unique political, theological, economic, societal vision emerges, but it's only when it's taken together and the theological component is very important. So here I, I put really just a few paragraphs uh, from the book. Again, I really do suggest if you have the time to go out and get it and read it, um, it really gives you a perspective on how novel what the Torah was trying to do uh, in the ancient world was. But his goal in chapter three is to highlight all the different economic laws we have in Torah and what they're doing uh, to um, when understood on the backdrop of the ancient Near East. So he writes as follows. The task of adducing a theory of economic distribution from laws of the Bible, however, is a daunting one. One is tempted to proceed by identifying the laws that deal with economic affairs to assess their overall message and to draw conclusions. 
Yet if we do so without an awareness of the mental divide between our world and the biblical world, we will be doomed to misunderstand. As the late Hungarian-American economist Karl Polanyi noted, inhabitants of a commerce-based economic order such as ours stand at an enormous divide from them, those who lived in a pre-modern society. Once upon a time, he noted, the economic order was merely a function of the social order in which it was subsumed. In the capitalist world we inhabit, however, the opposite is the case. Social relations have become embedded in the economic system. Right. So his first insight that complicates it is that in the he claims that in the modern world, the economy comes first, society is embedded in an economic system. But in the ancient world, economics was just an expression of the social order. Now that's going to be very important next week, because as I already noted, the second level that Ray Sachs identified, right? He noted the, right, if we go back up, right? The first level is the political, but the second was what he called psychological. But I think we could call the social order, the importance of fraternity. If Professor Berman is right, in the ancient world, first you defined your social relationships, and then the economy was an expression of that. But that means that it's not just that Jews happen to view each other as brothers, but a country in which everyone was mandated theologically to view each other as brothers, the economy had to look a certain way, but that doesn't mean the Torah believed that the same economy would be true when the social order was different, right? And if your starting point is the social order and not the economic order, that is very important. So that's point one. He continues, thus, in assessing the economic philosophy of the biblical legal collections, we need to be mindful that its terms can be properly construed only as a function of a larger social, and in this case, theological order, within which it is embedded. Understanding what the Pentateuch has to say about lending and borrowing, taxation and land tenure, is not a matter of assessing several scattered verses, but of seeing those verses in relation to the wider social and theological statements within which they appear. So it's not just, again, the social order, it's the theological one. And you need to understand the background to understand what the Torah is doing economically. So now I give you just a few examples from the chapter. He says, a ubiquitous feature of the socioeconomic landscape of the ancient Near East was the danger the common men faced of falling into irreversible insolvency. Social stratification emerged as free citizens lost control over their means of production. A common, a common pattern of this process was as follows. A peasant, a small landowner, resides in a small plot of privately owned lands and engages in subsistence farming. As his margins of profit are slim, he can go into debt for any number of reasons, personal illness, crop failure, taxation, or the monopoly of resources by the state or private elite. His first line of recourse is to procure a loan, which, which he can only get at high interest. The high interest renders him insolvent. So he's forced to sell or deliver family members into debt slavery to pay off the debt, as we see in Kings and in Nehemiah. What this does not, what, when this does not secure the means to pay off the debt, he has to resort to relinquishing or selling his own land, his means of production, and finally to selling himself. Thus, he is compelled to enter the service of the state or some arrangement of feudal sharecropping for the landowning elite. 
to counter this cycle, the biblical law introduces a series of legal and conceptual reforms that together seek to achieve social equality, but of a very specific kind. It's not the egalitarianism developed since the French Revolution with its emphasis on the individual and inalienable human rights. Nor does this equality manifest itself in family organizations, size of holdings, or amounts of production. Rather, it takes the form of an economic system that seeks equality by, by granting communal and divine legitimation to respective households that assist one another in agrarian labor, uh, labor and granting relief to other households in need. Right, so he says, to summarize, in the ancient world, what would happen was people would try to work. If they succeeded, great. If they failed, so they were very quickly at risk of not just losing that business, but if they were sick or the like, they might have to sell the land. If they sell the land, they don't have the ability to make more money. So they go further into debt. And to get out of that, they either need to sell themselves into slavery, family members into slavery, sell off their land. Um, and once you're at that point, there's no way out. The Torah wants you to get out of that. So it introduces loan waivers, right? Which we call Shemitah. Every seventh year, we waive the loans. It wants to make it that you eventually get back the means of production. That's what we call Yovel, that you get back your land in Yovel, your ancestral property. It wants to make sure that the slavery that people had to, or indentured servitude, as it were, that you have to sell yourself into to survive does not become permanent. So slavery was only for seven, well, it was only for six years, but even if people chose to say, uh, stay on, they didn't have the option to stay on past the Yovel, so they go free in Yovel. And all these laws together prevent um, people from getting to a spot that they can never get out of. But he notes that while these laws have a social orientation, they are intimately bound up in the theological notions as well. Only by appreciating the theology that stands behind these laws will we be able to fully construe their social implications. You can read the whole chapter to see the full theological point, but I gave you just a summary. To summarize the laws of, of Leviticus, to summarize, the laws of Leviticus 25 rework existing institutions in order to shore up the economic stability of the common man of Israel. In this first instance, we have seen how this is so with regard to the norms of land tenure. No land in Israel is owned by the state or the king, and very little by the temple or by its officiants. Right? So here he says, wait a second. In the ancient world, who were people selling their land to? Right? Who were they becoming enslaved to? So they were being come in, becoming enslaved to the state or to the king or to the temple, right? The temples, because the idolatrous temples, the priests, they were the landowners. So you became beholden to them. In the Torah's vision, when we say that the land goes back to your ancestral, right, the ancestral land goes back, we're not just saying we want you to be back on your feet. What we're saying, <laughs> as he continues, is rather the land is held by individual families as a grant from the sovereign, in this case, God. Right? What we're saying is as follows. God is the king, the real king, not the monarch. 
God himself is in control. So not the monarch and not the, not the temples. Not the state. And God has chosen that the fundamental unit in society is families. And therefore, God has granted land to family units. And at the end of 50 years, the land has to return, maybe not to the person who sold the land, but maybe to his son or his grandson, because family units are recognized by God. He continues, the peasants hold on the land is buttressed by two elements. The first is the cluster of family subunits that own the land and offer a mutual assistance group for each, for each other in the time of need. The second element of the system is the limitations concerning the, the saleability of the land. As it may not be sold in perpetuity, the peasant never runs the risk of being permanently alienated from the land, which is his means of production. So now, if we take both of Rysaxe's insight, right, that Yovel and Shemitah are functioning at three levels. Right? One, yes, is the economic level that we talked about with Jabotinsky and Herzl last week. It is clearly saying something about an ideal economy. But as Rabbi Sachs notes, that's only if it's embedded in the social, psychological, fraternal order, point one. And two, that is in turn embedded in a theological order. Or as Professor Berman has it, that to understand Shemitah and Yovel and all the laws, you need to realize that one, in the ancient world, economy didn't come first, right? You didn't first have the economy and then figure out how social um, dynamics worked within the economy. You started with a social order and economics was a mere expression of that, point one. Point two is what was that social order and what was that economic order? Well, in the ancient world, the reality was that the economy was theologically charged. When you had to take out loans or you sold your land, it was often to the king. And the king was often seen as God or was appointed by God. Or maybe you sold it to the temples and the, the temples, therefore, and the priests were therefore not just religious functionaries, but they were political players and they were economic players. And God comes in and says, I don't want an economy like that. I don't want a social order like that. I want a social order where the theological background to society and therefore the economy is that everything is run by the sovereign, but the sovereign is God. And God has chosen that the basic unit in society is not the individual. It's not servant of the king, but our family units that are granted land by the sovereign who is God. Now, whether you take the modern version of Isaacs or you compare it to the ancient Near East, um, as Professor Berman does, what you see is that we now have a little bit of a problem. Because if we stop at level one, as Isaacs has it, the insights of Shemitah and Yovel into the economy. So then one could argue that Shemitah and Yovel are actually telling us something, not just about halacha and Jewish law, but about what is the Torah's ideal economic vision in general. And therefore, maybe someone who sees insight in the Torah could borrow from Yovel, from Shemitah, 
not just in Israel, but in America and in Canada and in England and in the European Union and in Russia and China and Australia and wherever they want to find inspiration for a new economic model, Yovel is there for them. But if you think that the Torah's economic vision is unique, but it's only unique because it thinks that the world is such that economics are embedded within a social order and the social order is embedded within a theological order. And therefore the whole economic vision is only coherent when a system is built around those social ties and those theological realities, then it's a very complicated question of, yes, the Torah may have something unique to say about economics, but is Yovel, is Shemitah, um, a place to look in a system that doesn't have the theological and social framework built around it? I'll be honest, I don't know the answer to that question, right? Um, but I think it's an important question to ask because on the one hand, I recognize the value of a Jabotinsky-like analysis or even Rabbi Sachs's level one analysis, right? The belief that if the Torah has wisdom in it, that, and the Torah offers a unique economic vision that anybody in the world, whether they're believers or not believers, whether they're Jewish or not Jewish, can look at the Torah and on its own terms say, is there something here <clears throat> that is different than what I've been offered by what I know of socialism, what I know of capitalism, what I know of whatever economic system I have? On the one hand, there's something very appealing about that view. On the other hand, are we being true to the economic system of the Torah if we don't recognize that as unique as its system might be, it's unique because it recognizes that the economy, like everything else, is an expression of a social order and a theological order, which is much more complex than just the few laws that we've just pulled out. And if the Torah believes that Yovel only works um, with that background, then it could be that maybe in an idealized Israel, one day Yovel will be um, the vision of an economic model. That may be true, but maybe it doesn't have that much to say to, let's say, someone who's looking for guidance from the Bible for economic insight in America, Canada, the European Union, or whatever. Um, and I remember when I taught this once to my students, this was the question my students left me with. And like I said, I, I honestly don't know what the answer is, right? Because there's something very appealing to say firmly, the Torah has a unique economic vision and it clearly does. But it's also hard to deny the fact that like everything else in Torah, especially big vision things, um, those big vision things are embedded in a social reality and a theological reality that makes it make sense. Um, and it's not clear how much you can just borrow at will um, when you don't have it. I'll make one more point. Um, I remember Rabbi, Rabbi Aryeh Clapper once described in a different context, the problem as follows, right? He noted that in Israel, there are many people who study what's called Mishpat Ivri, right? Mishpat Ivri is essentially an attempt to study Torah and study Halacha and glean political insights 
um, that can be applicable in modern Israel, despite the fact that it's a secular state. And that was spearheaded by people like, um, like Justice Alone, who wrote the book Mishpat Ivri, but has been taken up by many, many prominent thinkers. And until today, in Israeli law, if you look at court cases, you'll see here and there, they will incorporate halakha, they'll incorporate in libel law, uh, they'll incorporate halachic discussions, legal discussions by the Chavetz Chaim and his magnum opus on Lashon Hara. That model, right, believes that every individual halacha, every individual Torah law, um, even when it's not part of a holistic Torah society, has some divine insight in it. And therefore, every law that we can get into Israeli, the Israeli legal system is just a little bit more of God in our legal system. That's one vision. <clears throat> but he says a second vision um, is that Mishpat Ivri can't work because maybe the laws only work when they work together. Right? And if the laws only work when they work together, then trying to sort of stick in random laws when you can might just create an incoherent system, right? Because that just means that our system in Israel is a little bit of leftover law from the Ottomans and a little bit of leftover laws from the British and a little bit of law that they just grabbed randomly and a little bit of halacha that they find interesting. And we mix it all together as if it's coherent. But sometimes that doesn't work because in order to have a working legal system, you need to have a coherent legal system, but that doesn't work when you have four different, you know, three, four, five legal systems that also are vying to express themselves in some way <clears throat> in the law. Um, and therefore, the, the, the sort of the opposition to a vision like Mishpat Ivri would be, it's very nice that you want the Torah to be relevant, even in a non-Torah society, but maybe that doesn't make sense because the Torah is assuming a coherent <coughs> worldview and a, and a holistic society um, that practices its vision. And maybe by trying to bring in, you know, just a law here and a law there, you're going to make things worse because maybe that law doesn't work with the British and the Ottoman law that's set next to it. And that, I think, is the fundamental question I want to leave you with, with Yovel, is again, on the one hand, it definitely has a different vision of the economy than pure socialism or pure free market capitalism. On the other hand, how well do we understand the totality of the Torah's vision for the world such that we can say with conviction that even though we don't live in a society that's run completely under the assumptions of God and all the other mitzvot that taken together create the reality and the fabric of society that allows Yovel to work, how well do we understand the system such that we know that these are laws that can be pulled out and applied even while everything around it is not a living reality? And that, I think, is a major question. Again, I don't have an answer. And like I said at the beginning of the series last week, my goal in this series is not necessarily to hammer out details, right? We did that last year uh, when we did um, the series on worker um work uh, employer employer employee relationships where we try to you know narrow down some details what i want to do in these 6 weeks is ask the big question of like what is the torah's vision for the economy and like i said here's where i'm stuck right or not stuck here's where i see two very legitimate views that each pull at me 
right? One view which says the Torah is something unique to say about the economy, and therefore as much of it as we can get in Mishpat of Restyle, whether it's in Israel or somewhere else, would be great because even if not everyone believes in God, and even if it's not a fully Torah world, still God's economy and the fairness in it and the balance between the free market and the problems created by the free market, as Jabotinsky would have it, that's a great insight that everyone can learn from. Part of me is pulled towards that. And part of me recognizes that the reason Yovel works and the evil, the reason Shviat works is because it's, it's imagining a society where everything is built around its theological vision and its social vision. And if that's the case, I have to be very, very convinced that I know that Yovel can exist in a society without all the other mitzvot. And I honestly, I don't know the answer. So that I think is the major question that we have to sort of struggle with. So again, it's A, does the Torah have a unique vision of the economy? And B, does that vision, can that vision be implemented piecemeal in a way that is meaningful? Um, and both of those are really hard questions to answer. But that I think are the, those are, I think, the questions you have to grapple with if you want to really understand the question, what would it mean for us to try to take insights from the Torah and apply them to our economic lives? So there are other points I could make on Yovel. And as I said, next week, when we come to rebeat, to usury laws and interest laws, we'll return to this, the importance of the social aspect, right? The fraternity aspect as, um, as Ray Sachs has it, the idea of brotherhood underpinning the economic system. But um, before I make some other potential points, now is a great time to throw it to questions, insights. You know, what do you think about these broad questions, right? Do you think that, are you convinced that the Torah has a unique economic vision? Um, do you think that Jabotinsky or Ray Sachs' view or, or Professor Berman's view um, accurately portray that unique vision? And two, um, are you convinced, like Jabotinsky, that even taking God out of the equation, we can tease out the insights of a, of a law like Yovel and Shemitah and apply in the modern economy? Or do you hear the, the uh, problems with applying it when it's being applied piecemeal? So before I say other points, <coughs> let me open it up to questions and comments. And if we have time, we'll, we'll make some other points, but at least we've covered, I think, the major um, halachic and philosophical questions that we need to struggle with in the remaining four weeks uh, that we have. All right, and if you're and if you're in the attendee category, um, if you raise your hand or ask to speak, I'm happy to unmute you for any questions you have. Yeah, you know, I'll unshare the screen. One second, I'm just going to unshare the screen so I can see people. And you're free to ask questions either or comments either, yeah, by talking, by messaging. Um, I have. Three comments, but that was from before, saying that we stop before Hanukkah. Yeah, okay, that's uh, that's true. Um, okay, so any thoughts about these? Any questions? Um, sure, I have one. I guess to start. Sure, okay, um, I'm still thinking. I'm still thinking on the um, what you brought in from Rabbi Clapper. Um, what context was that in? Because that's interesting to think of in light of you know Shemitah, especially coming out of Shemitah year. Um. So. Uh, I mean, it, was, it was really in the context of if is mishpat ivri, um, uh, it is, is mishpat ivri a um, right a useful um, sort of approach to life, 
Um, I mean, that, that it, was, it was in the context we were having a discussion about legal theory um, and the possibility of takanot, right? Um, I think we were also talking about Rav Herzog, right? Because Rav Herzog also, um, right? Rav Herzog is really the opposite vision, right? Rav Herzog's vision, um, you know, this this is, you know, could take us forever, but Rav Herzog had the vision that Torah could actually be um, the guiding law for Israel, but not as it exists now, um, but because since um, halachically observant Jews had not run a country um, or really had much political power for 2,000 years, a halacha hadn't been updated. And therefore, Rav Herzog said, listen, the Torah could be the vision for uh, all of Israel, but only if we make many, many, many takanot, we make many decrees so that the Torah can be can affect every area of life, and can, we can update um, the legal discussions that have not talked for a long time. So Rav Herzog said, yes, we can update the Torah, as it were, um, but only if we do it completely. Now, not really completely, because he didn't actually want to take over the criminal system, um, but he did think economically you could um, basically run the entire system on halacha. And that was a very different vision, right? Um, you know, an idea that... You know, and uh, let's see if I, I think it's right behind me. Yeah. Um, right. So Reference, I wrote three volumes called Tchukali Israel al Torah, right? Legislation uh, for Israel for, from the Torah, right? And it's, it's three very long, three very long volumes here. Um, and that's like a different vision, right? It's, a vision that we could do it, but if we do it, we're going to have to do it as completely as possible. Now, admittedly, it still wasn't 100%, but it, was, it wasn't, you know, let's basically have the Israeli system, which is secular, and we'll write a bunch of books, and, you know, if we can get the Chavetz Chaim to be quoted in libel law, yay for us, right? It was, no, if you want an economic system, then revisit the laws of, of inheritance and revisit the laws of testimony and revisit the laws of taxation and revisit the laws of everything. And by the time you get it all together, then we can figure it out, um, right? And that's a very, um, and that's a very different vision. Now, of course, you know, in a certain way, obviously, even extreme, more extreme of that would be, let's say, in the Haredi world, right? The, where the Haredi world is like, is look, right? Either you wait for Mashiach and society is run by Torah. And until then, we will treat the state as if it's secular, even though it's run by Jews, right? And then we'll act, right? That's also at some level recognizing um, that it's an all or nothing proposition, right? And again, it could be that the answer is in the middle. Um, Rav Herzog at some level is in the middle, right? It's, I don't need everything, but I also don't want this. It's not piecemeal, right? It's, it has to be more holistic, maybe not everything. Right, but it has to be that at least if we're talking economically, economics are fundamentally run by halacha, even if that means we have to update halacha, right, with decree decrees and the like. Um, so yeah, I, I, I do think that this question isn't just true for economics, it's true for basically everything big, right? Because I think, look, is it true? You know, I have no problem fundamentally with saying that, you know let's say a specific libel decision, you know, you want to think about what is, you know, so you look at the Chavetz Chaim and it gives you some insight. Maybe you could say that, right? Maybe you could say that even if you don't need a holistic vision, an insight here and there about libel law, fine. But like economics, right? 
how does the economy run? Such a broad question that I think you really do have to ask. Does it make sense to stick in a little law here, a little law there, or does it need something more holistic in a Herzog sense, or maybe even in you know a Haredi sense where it's literally all or nothing? It's Melech HaMashiach, or it's a secular state and we don't care. You know, we'll basically just act as if this was America or Europe or whatever. Um, um, and again, like I said, the reason that I don't come down, you know, firmly on it is because I think obviously some of Torah, and at some level, Torah should always have some insights, even if you can't apply it in its maximalist uh, expression. On the other hand, we recognize that certain things um, just don't make sense unless they're in a certain backdrop, right? <clears throat> um, you know, whatever that might be, right? Certain, um, you know, right? Whatever it might be, right? I, you know, I mean, you know, to take a simple example, right? None of the temple laws make sense unless you have a beta mikdash, right? Like there's certain things, like it's not like you're going to say, well, I could tease out some of the laws from the mikdash and apply it now without a beta mikdash. That's just not going to happen. Um, and the economy is something that's so big that on the one hand, you want to say, well, there are insights here that are really crucial. On the other hand, maybe the economy only works when it's holistic. And and I, you know, I, and it could be that the answer is it's not all or nothing, right? It could be that it just means you have to be really, really careful and certain insights you can take um, and certain insights you can't. All right. Um, um, I see a question coming up from Thomas. Uh, you should oh, yes. be able oh, to, oh, hey, Ray, you should be able yes. to unmute okay. yourself. Um, hey. Hi, can you, can you hear me? Yes, Thomas. Yes. So super. Uh, too many things to think about. But um, so I'll, my background is economics. So to give you the, that uh, that information. So you know, first thing I want to think about is what, what are we, you know, what what is on a big picture? What's the system trying to optimize? Right? Are, they, are we optimizing a better society for everybody from an efficiency point of view? Are we trying to optimize a society that is godlike and totally driven by listening to what Alaha says. So that's the, the kind of big questions. But I have a simple question on a micro level. When we talk about Shemitah and seven years, is it seven years for everybody at the same time? Or is seven years from each loan? Or so, so when you think about it, why would somebody who needs help, what's the incentive somebody to give the loan uh, six months or a year before the seventh, the seven year for everybody comes. We, we have a problem on, of course, the general idea of redistribution is perfect. We, we're doing that through taxation in many ways today. It's the same thing, right? So the question is, when you talk about Shemitah, have we thought about the incentives the Shemitah laws have? Um, okay, so let me. I'll, I'll answer your, your second question first, and then I'll, I'll, I'll start answering your big questions. Um, but more, I will point you in the directions, and hopefully we'll get to some of the issues uh, throughout the course, but, but I will send you to, uh, to, uh, to other sources. Okay, so um, <clears throat> the simple answer is that when it comes to loans, um, Shemitah follows an objective seven-year standard. It's the same for everyone. Um, when it comes to um, slavery slash indentured servitude, it's a personal seven years or six years um, where um, what people who sell themselves into indentured servitude, that it lasts for six years from when they are sold. Um, but the Yovel uh, is still objective. Um, your question as to incentives, well, the Torah asked that question itself, right? The Torah says, recognizes the fact that because it's an objective seven years, 
the closer you get to the seventh year, the less likely anyone will want to lend money. Um, and there the Torah says, um, well, you should do it anyways. Um, and what you see very clearly there is that, yeah, the Torah isn't functioning on a model where the only thing that matters is you getting your money back. Because it understands that if you lend money to a poor person who's desperate a year before it's gonna, the loan is going to be wiped away, you're probably going to lose your money. Um, and the Torah says, well, nevertheless, you should, you should still lend money. Um, but rabbinically, um, that we saw that didn't work. People weren't willing to be that generous. Um, and therefore, they just didn't lend money before Yovel. And for that reason, Hillel um, quite famously instituted a rabbinic workaround, um, which we don't have time to get into, called Prusbul, uh, which allowed you to lend money before the Shemitah and still collect it um, after the Shemitah um, because you virtually gave over the loan to the rabbinic court um, because we were stuck between an ideal society in which people were willing to give money even when they know they knew they might not get it back and the economic reality that people weren't willing uh, to do that. Um, that's the brief answer. As to your first question, what are we trying to maximize? So I, I believe I heard you ask, are we trying to maximize efficiency? So the short answer is as follows. Um, probably the most prolific rabbinic writer about modern economics uh, was Rabbi Dr. Aaron Levine. Um, he wrote like, I don't know how many books on economics and halakha. He believed consistently throughout his books that the Torah fundamentally, its primary concern is efficiency. Um, this is a very hard read of the Torah's overall vision. Um, and Rabbi Dr. Itamar Rosenzweig, if you go on YU Torah and you search efficiency, has a point-by-point -point, um, rebuttal to Dr. Levine's thesis showing why the notion that the Torah's economic vision is fundamentally in a, um, an efficiency-based one is probably incorrect. But you're asking the right question, right? Which is, in order to answer the questions, we have to figure out what is the goal of the economy where, um, again, Dr. Levine thought that Fundamentally, Torah was completely synonymous with an efficiency-based vision of the economy. Um, and that, again, as Rabbi Dr. Rosenzweig points out, that is a very, very difficult understanding um, because the Torah doesn't seem to think that. The Torah seems to have other goals, social and theological, which we're going to develop some of them in the coming weeks. Um, but the notion that efficiency was the number one goal and the primary goal to which you could... Um, reduce um, all the economic laws in the, in the Torah about, that seems to be very unlikely, but he does try to defend this thesis um, in many of his books. Um, but I, I will direct you there um, to figure right. out whether you find his thesis compelling or you take um, um, uh, Rabbi Rosenzweig's um, critique of said thesis uh, as compelling. I, I tend to not find Dr. Levine's overarching thesis compelling. I think that the Torah's uh, economic vision is more complex. And that's one of those things that I want to develop uh, in the coming weeks. As, as Noah notes, yes, if the point of the Torah is efficiency, modern Jews have missed the mark. Yeah, I, I, you know, I think that it's fair that even if efficiency might be <clears throat> important in certain halachot, um, the economic vision of the Torah seems to be broader, uh, broader than that. And that, again, that's part of our goal in the next four weeks, even though we're not going to cover everything. Um, I think we will be able to prove that it does seem to be more than just uh, efficiency. Um, what it is, we'll, we'll have to try to answer. So does that begin to answer your question? Oh, no, it's great. Um, yeah. 
Okay. And if, if you want the link, um, then you can email me. My email is at the top of the source sheet. Just a reminder, anyone who wants to follow up with me, I'm probably the best way if you just want me to send you the actual articles by Dr. Levine and then the uh, response to Dr. Levine by Robert Rosenzweig, uh, you can just email me at the email that's at the top of the source sheet um, and I'll, uh, I'll I'll send you the links. Um, so if you have trouble finding them, just, just email me. Thank you. I have his books. Yeah. Um, okay, great. Um, but uh, yeah, and, and but, if you, but I, I would I would suggest looking at Ray Rosenzweig's critique because it, it is a good example of whether um, right of, of of grappling with whether that assessment of uh, of halachic economy is actually correct. I thought it was a very very well done um, um, point by point um, treatment of uh, of the of the compelling nature or lack thereof of Dr. Levine's uh, arguments. Um, okay. Um, now, with those questions, we're over time by a few minutes. I, I will stay on if people have more questions, but Kayla, I will let no, you do I it. That's, we, we, that, I so. do like making time for questions. Um, I just want to remind people of the link to the source sheets if you do have questions or if you want to review from today's class, and I'm just sharing that in the chat. Um, but thank you, everyone who's came. Thank you to everyone who asked questions. If you want to keep learning with Drisha, our next class, we have many classes this month. You can find out more at grisha.org slash classes. And our next upcoming class is later, is coming up soon at 2.30 p.m. on the topic of women in rabbinic law and narrative with Dr. Um, with Dr. Shana Strachschik. You can sign up and you can find more information and sign up at grisha.org slash classes. Um, if you had questions for Rabbi Daring and you didn't get to, and we didn't get to them, or if you think of something at another time, please see the source sheet link and it has his email. Great. Oh, and I do just want to make one brief point, um, right? That Noah here made a point in the comments that many of the issues we talked about came up in Shemitah. That's true. Um, and a lot of the insights um, we could flesh out by analyzing Shemitah. The only reason I'm trying to avoid spending too much on Shemitah is because last year, Drisha ran um, a, a series of classes on Shemitah. Um, and so I did not, I, I purposely um, veered away from Shemitah. But if you want to think about how Shemitah specifically fits into this, where some of these over these ideas will emerge over and over, um, you can check out the, the full archive of Drisha's classes. It was a lot. Um, I tried to listen through all of them, um, but uh, um, so it, you can listen there, but I, I did try to take different topics than Shemitah to not rehash um, what was dealt with um, last year. Understand, um, understandable. I'm okay. just going to share the link to anyone who does want to uh, cat if this, who is interested in more Shemitah Torah, where they can find all of these many hours of content, I think. Yes, according hours to Noah, it was 28 hours of content. So, so um, yeah, I just did not want to rehash 28 hours of, of content. Um, all right. Well, thank you everyone for joining us. And okay. thank, you, thank you, Rabbi Zering, for your time and your Torah. And I look forward to thank you everyone for coming um, and have a good afternoon yes. for those in America and uh, good evening for those of us on my side of the. Yes of the ocean. And for those of us tuning in from the US, we will be meeting next week, even though it is technically air of Thanksgiving, but, but Torah is still on. Great. <laughs> okay. Okay. Have a good week. I'll see you next week. Take care.